and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Relevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the 447th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Akhil Amar, Sterling Professor of Law at Yale University. We're going to be talking about the words that made us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. To begin, welcome to the show, Akil. Thank you, Jay. I'm honored to be here. We are excited. We call the first segment of this show Farouk Dinarin, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background into today's subject. So, can you start us off with some basic information on who the major players are that engaged in the constitutional conversation that you write about in your book? Great. Uh, By um, acclamation, pretty much consensus, the six great, and they are men, a men of the um, founding era, are our first four presidents, George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and they're important even, obviously, before the presidency, but but those four, plus Alexander Hamilton and Ben Franklin. Those are pretty much the big six, and they're featured very prominently in the book. Um, I have chapters actually named Washington, um, uh, um, uh, Jefferson, Madison, um, uh, 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 Hamilton, and so on. Um, now, um, I start my story a little bit earlier than is conventional. Uh, most folks who talk about the American Revolution start the story in 1763. I started earlier, 1760, and I introduced the reader in Chapter 1 to a couple of people who are less well-known, James Otis, um, he's uh, kind of this rabble-rousing lawyer in Massachusetts. He's the, the Patrick Henry, so to speak, of Massachusetts. I also introduced the reader to the, the leading loyalist, the person who's American-born, who's the most prominent, um, really American-born um, figure who's going to side at the, in 1775-76 with the Brits, with King George III. His name is Thomas Hutchinson. So he's a character... Um, that that some that really in very um, uh, well-read readers um, and audience members may not know about. So I introduce Otis and Hutchinson along with John Adams um, uh, early on. Uh, the story goes all the way through until 1840. The, uh, it starts in 1760 and ends in 1840. The first four score, 80 years of our conversation, and by the end of the period, I'll bring on uh, stage people like John. Marshall, um, his um, uh, the great Chief Justice, his uh, protege um, uh, uh, Joseph Story, um, uh, uh, Andy Jackson is a very Im- important figure um, uh, by the end of my story, and then there are cameo appearances by all sorts of people from Abigail Adams to to John Jay and and obviously many more, Patrick Henry and others. But the big six um, kind of anchor the um, the narrative. And in my last chapter, adieus, um, goodbyes, um, basically the reader will see the death scene of each of these big six. And there's actually something really significant about how each of them died. Okay, so if those are the major players, what are the major ideas and where did they come from? Because in general, things don't pop out of a vacuum. 
Um, so yeah. where are these individuals drawing their their information or or their ideas from? The biggest character, if you will, that, that hovers above everything, and, and it may be misleading to even think about it as a character because it's it's the world, the context in which in everyone that um, um, uh, everyone um, o- operates, in which they um, um, live and move and breathe and have their being, is the American people. And in fact, one of my chapters is ca- called People, another is called America, another is called We. And, and what's really extraordinary is these are extraordinary men who are produced by an extraordinary culture. It first has to create this culture, um, a Franklin, a Washington, a Hamilton, and so on. It, it has to make it possible for, for them to, to be the extraordinary persons that they are. And then this very same culture, and it's an extraordinary democratic culture, is going to have to find them. You know, not only have to produce them, but find them, put them in just the right place um, at just the right time to do just the right thing. And again and again and again, America manages to do that. And one wonders, you know, how that happens. Um, uh, um, uh, And that's not true in other societies around the world where if I tell you about the great men, well, a lot of them. They're, they're great men just because they were born into a certain kind of family. Then they claim a right to, in effect, tell others what to do by divine right, um, just because they're, they're the firstborn of the king um, or, or what have you. That's not how America operates. We first have to produce these people, many of whom are self-made, um, most famously um, uh, Hamilton and, and, and Franklin, but, but not limited to them. America is going to have to produce them and then find them and put them in just the right spots at just the right time, and then get rid of them when actually uh, conditions change and you need someone else to, to do various jobs. All right. Well, that is a perfect setup for uh, our next segment. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Akhil Amar, Sterling Professor of Law at Yale University, and we're talking about the words that made us America's constitutional conversation. 1760 to 1840. Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. And Brett, as the historian of the group, why don't you start us off? So you titled your book A Conversation. What was the most contentious part of that conversation in your view? Um, Maybe several parts. So at the beginning, it's whether we're going to stick with the Brits and just uh, um, we new worlders. We're not quite fully Americans yet. When I start my story in 1760, there are people in Massachusetts, there are Virginians, there are New Yorkers, um, and, but they don't yet have a continental identity. 
Um, so at the beginning, they're just, they see themselves as British folk in America. Um, each one, um, uh, people have a connection to London, they, but, but Boston isn't really talking to Williamsburg, um, uh, and it's not talking to, to Charleston so much. So at the beginning, it's whether we're going to become Americans and break with the Brits. That's the 1760 to 1776 um, uh, uh, conversation. And then between 1776 and 1787, it's whether we're going to transcend our state identities and become um, a fully um, unified and indivisible um, nation, um, whether the, the, the states, um, uh, the statesmen are going to continue to be statesmen rather than um, a full-blown um, a kind of proto-Abraham um, Lincoln Americans. Um, and, um, and that conversation about becoming actually an indivisible nation is going to be about geostrategy, national security. It's going to be about slavery. Um, uh, it's going to be about democracy. And so those are really the three big themes that carry the story um, forward all the way through um, 1840. And national security is also, of course, going to involve not just looking um, uh, uh, east toward um, Europe um, and, and fending off the, the great monarchical powers of Britain, France, uh, Spain, Russia, but um, west uh, as America um, uh, begins to um, push toward the Pacific. So um, geographic expansion slash national security, democracy, how much, how little, um, slavery, um, those are, are the big themes once America decides to break with Britain. Okay, Terry. Uh, yes, Akil, in your book, you talk about who is the father of the Constitution. And often we think of James Madison. You say it's George Washington, and second is Hamilton. Can you um, clarify that? Yeah, um, and when you think about it, it it's so obvious, because I promise you every American, when I just tell you a few facts, will say, oh, yeah, of course, we knew all of that. Okay, so um, no one's heard of James Madison when the Philadelphia Convention meets. He's a little nobody from nowhere, and that's fine. He's got some ideas, but actually... All his ideas, um, um, almost none of them actually prevails at Philadelphia. Who have all Americans heard of? Two people. Ben Franklin, who's world famous um, um, uh, and um, who, as an inventor and a philanthropist and, and a, a great diplomat who helps um, actually um, uh, cut the deal in, um, in Paris that will lead to um, America having all this land. And George Washington, who um, is the, the, the military um, leader um, of, of the revolution, the, the one that everyone, every American knows, George Washington. Madison's biggest accomplishment is getting Washington to show up at Philadelphia, where uh, Washington presides over the convention by acclamation. He's unanimously selected. Washington, um, Franklin is um, a Pennsylvanian, but he's kind of um, um, the senior statesman, kind, um, kind of, he's not going to wield power. Um, uh, of the uh, thir uh, 55 people at Philadelphia. One is Washington. Five others are his actually aides de camp from five different states, his, his law clerks, so to speak. Um, um, more than half of the people at the convention um, bore arms in the American Revolution. They design a constitution for Washington. Um, uh, the big themes are strong national security and a really strong presidency compared to um, uh, uh, state governorships um, and an indivisible union. Those are Washington themes. They're not so much um, uh, invariably um, Madison themes. Um, Washington 
signs, a, a, writes a letter accompanying the Constitution that um, every single American you know, who reads the Constitution reads Washington's letter saying, here's why we're doing it. Most Americans ratify the document who are on the fence because they are hoping that Washington will lead um, the, the new nation, be president. He's unanimously selected president. He's unanimously reelected president. That is, every elector votes for him. His right hand in, in the presidency um, is Alexander Hamilton. Madison actually opposes many signature um, uh, 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 policies by Washington, Hamilton, a national bank, um, uh, a, uh, um, a, a national carriage tax system. Madison's lukewarm on um, uh, assumption of state debt. So, so it's Washington's vision, um, Washington's uh, constitution. People vote for it because of him. Um, and, um, and, and when you think about it, like, yeah, we knew all of that. We knew that's why he's the father of his country. How could we ever think it was this little guy? And, and, and I'm, I'm a short fellow myself, but this little guy named James Madison, of course not. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, I'm curious the the two people that you always hear about not being at the constitutional convention who should have been would be John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, who are off busy doing diplomatic things in Europe. Um, and some people make a big deal out of that. Some people make very little deal of that. The argument being that Hamilton is kind of Jefferson's mouthpiece to, or excuse me, that Madison is kind of Jefferson's mouthpiece to some extent and so forth. Um, how do you see the the absence of those two folks playing out in the Constitutional Convention? Um, and then, of course, they're both going to end up as presidents. Um, and and how does when that happens, how does their their ideas affect this conversation you're talking about? Right. So um, you can never history is not like um, um, uh, a billiard balls where you can rerun the experiment. So I can't prove these things. Um, but the counterfactual that I explicitly pose is if lightning had struck Madison on his way to Philadelphia, we pretty much get the same thing. Lightning strikes um, George Washington. Maybe there's no America as we know it. He's the indispensable man. I say if Jefferson had been there, let's say Jefferson and Adams uh, had been there instead of Elbridge Gerry from um, uh, 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 Massachusetts, um, uh, uh, or um, um, G- George Mason from Virginia or something. You, sw- you swap them out for another G- um, Virginia guy, another Massachusetts guy, nothing much changes, actually. Um, most of the Constitutional Convention, I explain, comes from America, not from the mind of any one person. It's basically a continental version of the best practices of each state constitution. Um, and they may not have understood it at the time, but they're basically just looking at every issue and saying, you know, how does the best states do it? Oh, well, the best states have written constitutions and they have three branches of government and bicameral legislatures um, uh, and, and um, jury uh, trials um, uh, and uh, some judicial independence. So on each issue, um, look, I, I train lawyers. I, I teach in a law school. Lawyers aren't geniuses, actually. Um, at best, we're kind of engineers of a certain sort. And, um, and, and what a good lawyer does is understand what previous lawyers have done. Um, um, you don't go into a law firm and try to think what is a corporate charter, what is a contract. You go into the files and you find all sorts of documents that are previous contracts 
previous corporate charters and you just tweak them a bit. That's what the largely lawyers did at Philadelphia. They looked at the state constitutions. They picked the best practices that they, that they um, that, because they knew that we're going to actually have to get ordinary people to vote for the thing at the end. So the only person who really exerts massive gravitational pull over everything is, as they say, Washington, because the one big, big difference between the Constitution and its state constitution, the U.S. Constitution and state constitutional counterparts is a massively powerful president compared to the governorship. Four years, independently elected, re-eligible, veto pen, pardon pen, commander-in-chief. These are really important powers. No governor has that package, and they design it for Washington. Um, and he doesn't even have to say anything at Philadelphia. He smiles and people, you know, vote yes. He frowns and people vote no. <laughs> okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow up just a minute because that kind of explains the influence on the convention. But how about when Adams and, and Jefferson uh, get into the pres- presidency? Um, now, as you say, you know, we're, now we're, we're picking up a system that, that we've only had eight years of watching somebody work. Washington yeah. has gracefully moved off. How do these right. these minds who who weren't there and and you know I've read some of Jefferson's letters to, you know where he talks about you know gosh I sort of wish I'd been there because we would have had a bill of, we would have the Bill of Rights would have been part of the Constitution blah 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 so there's some envy I think <laughs> um, you know that I, that these guys weren't part of it how do they deal with their presidency in this conversation about the Constitution? Yes, so Washington is a very great look. He's not the big thinker, and so if you just are looking for, you know, just um, uh, um, uh, all his great um, speeches or or um, um, uh, uh, treatises, you won't see that. Um, but he, but he's really steady. Um, he's very virtuous. He he's not trying to make himself a king. He walks away from uh, a power when um, he has the only army on the continent. He walks again away from power um, as as president. But here's one thing about Washington: he's a very good judge in general of other people, and and he makes you know he he he, he makes Madison his kind of legislative point person, his prime minister early on. He picks Jefferson to be. Um, his secretary of state. He picks um, Hamilton to be his treasury secretary. He's got Jefferson on his left and, and Hamilton on his right. So, um, and, and no one is his peer. He, uh, he listens to Ben Franklin and Franklin really respects him. Um, but, when, uh, but when he leaves, um, Jefferson can't do it alone because Jefferson, you know, isn't his equivalent and Adams fails, basically. So Jefferson teams up with Madison and they're um, a good partnership. Um, Madison is more grounded than Jefferson Adams because he's just not a great team player and he's a vice president. He's kind of a man without a party. He's a man without a branch. Is he in the legislature? Is he in the executive? He doesn't sort of sit in the cabinet. He doesn't quite ally with the Federalists. He's not a, he's not a um, Jeffersonian Republican. So he's a man kind of without a party, without a branch. He has Abigail, but he's just not a team player. And he, his presidency is not entirely successful. It's a one-term failed presidency. Um, Jefferson creates a party, um, create and, and partners with with Madison. So when Washington Washington is so big, it's actually almost impossible initially for any one person to fill his shoes. Adams tries and fails, um, and he's thrown out of office. Um, Jefferson ends up succeeding because Jefferson actually is a party guy in a way that Washington wasn't. Everyone 
um, basically um, uh, uh, embraced Washington. Um, um, Jefferson and Madison in the end are going to broaden their coalition, um, but they're still not going to be able to replicate the unanimity of support that Washington had. Okay, Brett. So we see kind of the the popular version of the breakdown between uh, big states and small states and urbanized uh, interests and rural interests. Are there other alliances uh, that come into play that are less yeah. well known? Yes. And in fact, truthfully, for most of American history, um, uh, America has never really, in fact, been divided big state against small state. The only divisions about that in all of American history were at the Philadelphia Convention and maybe during the ratification process, some of it. America doesn't divide big state versus small state. The big states today have nothing in common, nor do um, the small states. California is on one side, Texas is on the other. New York is on one side, Florida is basically um, on the other. Um, Wyoming has very little in common, frankly, with um, Rhode Island. Um, um, uh, um, uh, uh, there, is, um, there are um, uh, turnpikes in Delaware and tundra in Alaska. Those are not the same thing at all. So America basically doesn't divide big state versus small state. Here are the divisions. North against South, and, and that's going to be a large part about slavery, and Madison understood that, and that's going to obviously lead to a, a civil war. Coasts against the hinterland. People who um, basically support the Constitution tended to be coastal dwellers. Cities against rural areas, um, and city folk tended to be Federalists. Those were the big divisions then. They still are now. North against South, coasts against um, the uh, hinterland, and cities against rural areas. In addition, some people say, oh, the constitutional debate is rich against poor and the rich guys favor the Constitution. I don't, that's Charles Beard. That's Howard Zinn. I don't believe it. Um, um, the Constitution is very popular among working folks, sailors, cobblers, shipwrights um, in places like New York City um, and, and, and Boston. Um, so the, the, it's not rich against poor um, the way Beard would have you um, uh, think it and Shays Rebellion, all the rest. Um, it's also actually the young people are more willing to vote for the Constitution because it's a new idea. And the closer you are to the fighting end of the American Revolution, the more you're going to support the Constitution because you realize we almost lost the Revolutionary War and we're going to lose the next one unless we create a much stronger uh, central government that can actually pay the army and pay the debts. Okay, Terry. Yes. Um, in Chapter 1, which you titled Seeds, you mentioned uh, James Otis Jr. Some of us have probably not heard of this man. Can you tell us why you see him as the man who sowed the seeds of the American Revolution? Yes, and bless you for reading it, and and and, and I'm grateful. So, so I wanted to begin with a certain kind of drama. John Adams um, later says, "Then and there, the seeds of the American Revolution were sown." And and and, and um, but he's, this is 50 years later. He's looking back, and of course, he wants it to be so because. He's in the room, and he's trying to say, actually, it all started in Boston and not Virginia. And, and he's a very proud Bostonian. He has pride of place. And he wants to look back and say, I was there before any of the rest of you. Um, but, you know, there, it may be true. And before Patrick Henry has begun to think about Britain at all or George III, there's this rabble-rousing guy in Boston. His name is James Otis. And I really hadn't heard very, learned, known very much about him before I began the book. And I was originally tempted to say, you know, John Adams is just mythologizing here because, you know, he was um, um, in, the, in the room. But the more I studied, the more I think, 
Actually, James Otis is this really interesting character. He's a lawyer and a politician. He's a rabble-rousing politician. So when he um, leaves the scene, the lawyer is going to become John Adams, and the rabble-rouser is going to become Sam Adams, and the two of them together kind of add up to one James Otis. You know, in in Virginia, he's a Patrick Henry-like person who's a lawyer and a rabble-rouser, but it really begins um, actually in, in Boston way before the Virginians are paying attention. James Otis early on is going to say, actually, Parliament should have limits. There should be a constitution that limits even Parliament and acts of Parliament that violate a constitution or uh, uh, that violate fundamental principles are, are unconstitutional and void. Wow, that's a big idea. He's going to coin the phrase in America in a couple of years after 1760, taxation without representation is tyranny. Wow, that's a big idea. He's going to say, the Brits aren't treating us well, but we're not treating slaves well. We should get rid of slavery, which the North does. Wow, that's a big idea. Um, he, he's going to be the person who champions um, an intercolonial um, 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 alliance against uh, Britain, which is going to be the stamp, become the Stamp Act Congress. That's basically James Otis's idea. The first time various American colonies get together in 1765 in New York, to present a united front to, against Britain and Parliament. That's going to be a big idea. So I came to think, oh, this guy Otis, I didn't really know much about him, but, but he's kind of interesting now. In the end, he's, he's gonna, he actually loses his mind. He, he has certain similarities with George III, in fact. Um, um, they're, they're both very interesting characters, um, um, but uh, my uh, audience doesn't know very much about James Otis or the leading loyalist who I got in, this, in the room at the same time, Thomas Hutchinson, who's a very interesting character. If he were alive today, he'd be Mitt Romney. Traditionalist, hierarchical, but a decent guy, smart guy. Um, you know, he happened to be on the wrong side of the historical debate, but, but, but a, a good fellow who loved his his hometown. He loved his king. Unfortunately, he had to pick between them, and, and he picked his king, um, but, but not a villain at all. And so in chapter one, Seeds, I've got John Adams in the room as a 25-year-old, nobody writing notes. I got this great rabble-rousing lawyer who's a fascinating character, James Otis, and I've got America, the person who will become America's leading loyalist, uh, Thomas Hutchinson. Uh, so it's an amazing story that no one has told before, truthfully. All right. Akil... We always try to give our guests the last word on our show. So why do you think, knowing about the Constitutional Convention, that conversation that has taken place from 1760 to 1840, is relevant in today's world? Because it's constitutional. Because, actually, the president today actually looks a lot like the president 200 years ago. He's independently elected, veto pen, pardon pen, commander-in-chief. That's true today. So if, you need to, if you're trying to think about Joe Biden or Donald Trump, it's not going to be helpful to look at what the New Zealand prime minister does or Macron does in, in, in France um, or, or um, um, you know, uh, um, um, Merkel did in, in Germany, you know, um, or Boris um, uh, Johnson um, does. You're going to need to understand the American Constitution, understand the presidency, because it's pretty similar um, even 200 years later, the Congress, we still have a bicameral Congress. We still have a judicial system. You can't understand your world today without understanding our Constitution. And our Constitution today still bears a really extraordinary resemblance to the Constitution that was launched way back when. All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. 
you're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 447th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zap Zapital. My name is Jay Swords, and we would like to thank our guest, Dr. Akhil Amar, Sterling Professor of Law at Yale University. We've been talking about the words that make us America's Constitutional Convention conversation 1760 to 1840. The history buffs for this show were Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotsa Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.